morning, church family. Today is Palm Sunday. Uh, this is the day uh, on the church calendar that has been historically set aside to remember the triumphal entry of Jesus. Uh, one week before Easter, Jesus rides towards Jerusalem, and as he does so, people spread palm branches and their jackets and clothes before him to praise him and celebrate him as their Messiah and King. Now, this is the beginning of the week that leads up to the crucifixion of Jesus on Friday. And so as we enter into this week and as we begin to look towards Easter Sunday, it's fitting that we begin this story by primarily, uh, where we will be primarily in Luke chapter 19 and John chapter number 12, which tell this story. Now, as we begin considering all that takes place uh, the week in the life of our Savior, Psalm 118 is another passage that we will be taking note of throughout this week. It won't be the main passage that we're teaching from, uh, but it's going to kind of serve as this background companion to uh, as we remember this week. Uh, counting today, we're going to meet three times as a church family and celebrate the events of this week, and Psalm 118 will be right there in the background through all of those gatherings. Of course, today is Palm Sunday, and we're going to see where Psalm 118 is referenced and quoted as people are celebrating and hailing Jesus as their Messiah. Uh, then we'll be having our Good Friday gathering this coming Friday, which will be our next communion service. And in that service, we're going to remember how the cornerstone was rejected and crucified. And of course, we'll see how Jesus becomes the sacrifice and the cross becomes the altar that we see in Psalm 118 as well. And then, of course, this whole week will culminate on Easter Sunday where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and his faithful love, which is how Psalm 118 ends. And for each of these services, we'll be looking at a few different passages. But like I said, Psalm 118 is going to be that background companion. And the reason I bring this up is because I would encourage all of us throughout this week just to kind of mull on that psalm throughout the week as we consider all that Jesus has accomplished. It's a great psalm. Many consider it to be a messianic one. And so I would encourage you, just as in your own devotional walk this week, as we are considering what Jesus has done for us and all that he accomplished this week that really impacted eternity and all of history, I would encourage you just to, to mull on that psalm as we consider all that Jesus did. Of course, today we'll be primarily in Luke 19 and John 12, uh, but we'll also be looking at that psalm as well. Now, the title of today's message is actually a question, and the question that we're going to consider this morning is, what makes Jesus weep? What makes our Lord and Savior weep? So to start us off this morning, I want to read all of Luke chapter 19 so we can get uh, the context of the triumphal entry of Jesus, and we are going to look at Luke's recording, which gives us a, a high-end view of the story. We'll also be referring many times to John chapter number 12, which zooms in a little bit more and gives us uh, some important details that we're going to consider this morning as well. So let's read Luke chapter number 19. If you have a Bible, flip there. If you don't have a Bible, you should be able to find one on the pew, uh, on the row close to you. Uh, feel free to use one of those and take advantage of that there. But let's read Luke chapter number 19, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able to because of the crowd since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, 
Hurry and come down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. He quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. All who saw it began to complain. He has gone to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Lord, I give half of my possessions to the poor. Lord, and if I have exhorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. As they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. We'll consider that throughout this morning's message as well. Verse number 12, therefore he said, a noble man traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then to return. He called ten of his servants, gave them ten minas, and told them, engage in business until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. At his return, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those servants he had given the money to so that he could find out how much they made in business. The first came forward and said, Master, your mina has earned ten more minas. Well done, good servant, he told him. Because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over ten towns. The second came and said, Master, your mina has made five minas. So he said to him, you will be over five towns. And another came and said, Master, here is your mina. I've kept it safe in a cloth because I was afraid of you since you are a harsh man. You collect what you didn't deposit and you reap what you didn't sow. He told him, I will condemn you by what you have said, you evil servant. If you knew I was a harsh man collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why then didn't you put your money in the bank? And I returned, I would have collected it with interest. So we said to those standing there, take the mina away from him. And give it to the one who has ten minas. But they said, Master, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And and from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. But bring here these enemies of mine, who do not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany... At the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say this, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying its colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, 
I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. For the day will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone on another in your midst, because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. He went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him, but they could not find a way because all the people were captivated by what they heard. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. I pray that your word would be a proclamation of good news, that it would be a proclamation of healing, that it would be a proclamation of liberty. I pray that you would open our minds to understand and contemplate the wondrous things that we are going to see in your word this morning. I pray that you would give us life and strength through your word. And I pray that your church would delight in your instruction and it would be planted in the good soil of open hearts so that we would be like righteous trees planted by flowing streams, bearing fruit to bring you glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. What makes Jesus weep? I said this morning we'd be primarily in Luke 19 and John chapter number 20, and we just read Luke number 19, but as we consider this question, I actually want to back up a little bit from the story that we're considering this morning. When we think about Jesus weeping, uh, some of us, if not many of us, may in our minds go to John chapter number 11 and verse 35. In John chapter number 11, Jesus is at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and we see him weeping. Now, in John's gospel, uh, this is just a few verses before the Palm Sunday narrative that we'll consider in John chapter number 12. John chapter number 11, verses 32 through 36 say this, As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked, Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept, one of the shortest yet most profound verses many of us hold dear. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Now the words in this passage, deeply moved in his spirit and troubled, they carry more of an emotional weight than simply being sad. The Greek word for deeply moved means to be very angry or moved to indignation. The root word carries the idea of snorting with anger. The word for troubled means to be agitated or restless. It means that Jesus was bothered. Jesus was angry. Jesus sees what is taking place, and he gets bothered. He gets moved to indignation, and he's getting moved to angry, to, to anger. These are the emotions that Jesus is feeling when he begins to weep. Now, these emotions are not directed at his friends. They're directed at death, and they're directed at the sin that causes death. Theologian B.B. Warfield said about this passage, indistinguishable fury seizes upon Jesus. It is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind death, him who has the power of death. 
and him who he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, he says, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but a decisive instance and open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What John does for us, he says, is to uncover for us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation, not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe. Jesus smites in on our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evil which oppresses us, he has felt for and with us in our oppression. And under the impulse of those feelings, he has wrought our redemption. John Calvin said on verse 38, Christ does not approach the sepulcher of Lazarus as an idle spectator, but as a champion who prepares for a contest. And therefore, we need not wonder why he again groans, why he is again troubled in verse 38. For the violent tyranny of death, which he had to conquer, is placed before his eyes. As Jesus considers the death, and as that death is placed before his eyes, he is moved in anger. And in his anger, he literally bursts into tears as he marches forward to raise Lazarus from the dead. But the main story that we're considering today is a triumphant one. And it doesn't seem like one that calls for weeping. It makes sense that, we, that Jesus would feel these emotions and that he would be moved into actions at the tomb of his friend. But in our story today, Jesus is not joining a gathering of grief, but of celebration. As Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, he is hailed and praised, and rightfully so, as the Messiah and the King. Look back at Luke 19, verses 35 through 40. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. And as he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Other narratives tell us about the palm branches that they were spreading on the roads. That's why today is called Palm Sunday. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. We see them praising him. And then the Pharisees from the crowd tell Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I love his answer. I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. When we read John's telling of this story, in John 12, verses 12 through 15, the Bible says, The next day when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna. That word Hosanna, it means, oh, save. It's a cry for help that's in the form of not a prayer, but a praise. So it's this praise. They see Jesus in his, they see Jesus coming down. They see all the miracles that, that he had done. And they rightfully understand him as king, as Messiah. And they cry out, Hosanna. Oh, save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it was written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. What John's telling of this narrative does is he shows that this is actually a fulfillment of prophecy. 
John is quoting Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9, the Bible says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, the foal of a donkey. The people had been waiting for this moment for hundreds of years. And the Messiah was finally there. And as they see their Messiah, as they see their king riding on this donkey, fulfilling this prophecy, they rightfully begin praising God. And as they praise God, they begin quoting our psalm of the week, Psalm 118. This psalm is considered a messianic psalm. And Psalm 118, verses 26 through 29, the Bible says, He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. This is what they're praising. This is what they're quoting because they recognize this psalm is talking about the Messiah. And as they see their Messiah coming in, they quote this psalm as they praise him. From the house of the Lord, we bless you, Psalm 118 goes on to say. The Lord is God and has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. This is no mere accident that they're quoting this psalm. They knew what they were quoting, and rightfully so. The people rightfully understood Jesus was coming into Jerusalem as their Messiah and as their king. This is why the Pharisees are getting upset, telling Jesus, you need to silence these people. You see, Jesus was a threat to their authority, and they feared Roman backlash, uh, John eleven forty eight tells us. They, the, the, the Pharisees are fearing this moment because they're thinking, if Jesus comes in as king, and if he gets set up as king of Jerusalem, Rome's going to come in, and they're going to overthrow us, and we're going to lose our power, and it's going to be a whole mess. And so the disciples praise, but the Pharisees fear because they understand what's happening. And I love Jesus' response. He tells the Pharisees that if the people are silent, the rocks will cry out. Jesus will be praised one way or another. The Messiah is going to get his glory one way or another. The kingdom of God was coming. This was not a moment for silence. This is not a moment for a tepid celebration. This was a moment to declare. This was a moment to praise. That's why the prophecy and the psalm, and we see these people are shouting, they're declaring, they're rejoicing because the long-awaited Messiah was here. Jesus is king, and his kingdom will bring peace to every nation. This was a moment of praise. The king of the earth was coming to inaugurate his kingdom. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights, Psalm 148 says. This was an amazing moment. This was a moment to shout. This was a moment to praise. It was a moment that's fitting the celebration that it's given. You see, the beauty of Palm Sunday, what we remember today, is we rejoice. We celebrate the kingship of Jesus We celebrate that he is our Messiah. The long-expected one who would bring peace to all nations has come. We rejoice and we celebrate that true peace is found in the person of Jesus and in his kingdom. And we rejoice that one day we will experience its full and final fulfillment in the new Jerusalem. I know we read this passage a few weeks ago, but we could read this passage every week and it would be a glorious thing to do. Revelation 21, 1 through 6, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look! 
God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. Jesus is beginning to inaugurate his kingdom. And we celebrate its beginning, but as believers, we also anticipate and celebrate its coming final fulfillment. What a triumph this moment was, the very first Palm Sunday. So then our question is, why does Jesus weep as he approaches the city? It's a moment of celebration. It's a moment of rejoicing. Look at Luke 19, verse 41. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone on another in your midst. Because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. As we consider this moment and we see the response of Jesus, we see that there was some misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God entailed in this moment. They rightly understood Jesus as their Messiah. They rightly responded in praise to Jesus as Messiah. But they wrongly understood what the Messiah was doing in that moment. And the ramifications of that caused Jesus to weep. Earlier we read Zechariah 9.9. As we consider this misunderstanding, let's reread verse 9, but let's also read it with verse number 10. Zechariah 9.9 and verse number 10 say, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The The bow of war will be removed, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates rivers to the ends of the earth. So as we consider this prophecy, it's easy for us to begin to understand why they thought Jesus was going to establish a physical kingdom in this moment. In fact, many thought this about Jesus from the very beginning. If you go all the way back to Jesus' birth, Matthew chapter number 2, we see Herod heard from the wise men that the Messiah was to be born, that the king of the Jews was being born. And Herod gets worried, and he orders the death of all infants and babies because he thought the Messiah, the prophesied king, would be a threat to his rule. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. After Jesus was born in Jerusalem, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star and its rising and have come to worship him. King Herod, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Matthew 2, 13. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up. Take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. Then in verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, 
flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Herod heard about a new king and wanted to kill him because this new king could have potentially been a threat to his power. In John chapter number 6, many realize that Jesus is the Messiah who they had been waiting for, and they try to force him to become the new king of Jerusalem. John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. They rightly understood Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. Jesus was the Messiah. He is the one that we have been waiting for. But verse 15 says, therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They were wanting to put Jesus on the throne of David, and understandably so. We looked at what Zechariah said. Consider his prophecy in chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 3 through 5. Then the Lord would go out to fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will split in half from east to west, forming a huge valley so that half the mountain will move to the north and half to the south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for the valley of the mountains will extend to Azal. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So imagine these disciples. They see Jesus triumphantly riding into Jerusalem on this colt, fulfilling prophecy, heading towards the Mount of Olives that we've seen. We, Luke mentions that he's heading towards the Mount of Olives twice. These people had to be thinking, this is it. This is the moment. He is going to come on this Mount of Olives. He is going to wipe out our enemies, and he is going to establish peace. He is going to begin his rule from the throne of David. Rome will be eliminated. Justice will be served, and we will be at peace. This is partly why when Jesus would tell them he had to first die, it, they, they didn't get it. They thought the Messiah was going to come to establish an earthly rule right away. Now, we might wonder, why didn't Jesus just tell them? So they could understand. And he did. Several times Jesus did. Mark chapter 8, verses 29 through 32. He's talking to his disciples and he asks them, But you, who do you say that I am? Peter rightly answers, You are the Messiah. And then Jesus does something interesting. He strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Why? Because Jesus wanted to clarify something. Then he, Jesus, began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man, the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for, to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. He spake openly about this. So Jesus is trying to help them understand. Jesus is teaching them this, that first the Son of Man must suffer and die so that he could rise from the grave to rightly fulfill prophecy. He is openly speaking about this. And as he does, Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Peter's like, oh, hold, hold up, Jesus. You're messing up everybody's hopes. You're messing up everybody's plans. You're the Messiah. You're supposed to institute this rule. What do you mean you're going to die first? But turning around and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter. And said, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. The Old Testament prophesied about the Messiah's death, but when Jesus taught that, it didn't click. Peter wrongly understood what the Messiah was going to do initially. And Jesus said that 
this misunderstanding was because Peter was concerned about human concerns and not God's concerns. Peter had his eyes on the physical, and Jesus was operating in the spiritual. The Messiah's first coming was not about an earthly human kingdom. Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34, right before his triumphal entry, then he took the 12 aside and told them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man, everything that is written about through the prophets, Jesus is saying, this is prophesied. Like, this is, this is how it's supposed to go, guys. About the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked, insulted, spit on. And after they flog him, they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. Tragically, though, the story goes on to say, they understood none of these things. The meaning of the saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. Jesus was trying to help them rightly understand the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, but they were focused on earthly things. Jesus weeps because he knows Jerusalem does not recognize that God was among them. And because their rejection of him would lead to his crucifixion, but also to their judgment. And as a result, his heart breaks. The love of Jesus is so great that he weeps for those who would reject him and crucify him. Just as Jesus was deeply troubled at the tomb of Lazarus, Scripture records for us that his soul is again, his soul is again deeply troubled as he considers Jerusalem's impending rejection of him and the destruction that that rejection would ultimately bring. Now, this rejection and misunderstanding was also prophesied about. John tells us this in his account of the Palm Sunday narrative. John 12, 27 through 34. Jesus says, my soul is troubled. It's the same thing, the same feeling, the same anger, the same agitation that Jesus was feeling at the tomb of Lazarus. He's feeling again here. And Jesus says, my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But that is why I come to this hour. That is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said, it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, this voice came not for me but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me... If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. Then the crowd replied to him, We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? You see, they understood that Jesus was telling them that he was about to die. He said this so that they would understand what death he was about to die, and they got it. It wasn't like they didn't understand he was telling them he was about to be crucified. They did because they were like, I, I thought the Messiah was going to stay forever. What do you mean you're going to die? Who is the Son of Man? We don't, we don't get it. And as the people's misunderstanding of the Messiah begins to surface, Jesus goes on to plead with them to turn towards the light. The passage in John 12 continues and said, Jesus answered, the light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have light so that the darkness does not overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, 
believe in the light so that you may become children of the light. Jesus is pleading with them. Yes, you're misunderstanding, but please believe. Jesus said this and then away and hid from them. We see Jesus explaining what is actually happening. He is pleading with these people to believe. But then the heartbreaking but prophesied about reality comes to fruition, and we see it in verse 37. Even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. John tells us that this was to fulfill the words of Isaiah the prophet, who said, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is why they were unable to believe, because Isaiah also said he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. This is why Jesus weeps. Writer John Bloom said, The great psalm, Psalm 118, celebrates, Bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Psalm 118, verse 27. Writer John Bloom goes on to say, Who on that day of the king's great arrival would have imagined that this king would come to be the sacrifice of sacrifice and that the Roman cross to which he would be bound would become the most sacred altar ever constructed? No one but King Jesus. This is why he had come, and this is why his soul so tro- was so troubled in the middle of the rejoicing crowd. Jesus is weeping because people miss where true peace is found. Now, in conclusion, after the resurrection, the disciples were still struggling to understand. They were still thinking earthly kingdom. They still thought Jesus was going to restore the nation then and there. After the resurrection, they were beginning to understand, oh, right, Jesus told us about this. He had to first die and be resurrected, but maybe he's going to start the kingdom now that he's resurrected. Now, before we get too hard on the disciples, let's have a few moments of self-awareness. All of us at times look to earthly solutions to find peace. Sometimes this is the result of misunderstanding Scripture. Sometimes this is the result of our own misplaced priorities. Sometimes it's the result of earthly concerns, not godly ones, but I love how Jesus responds to his disciples and the instruction that he leaves all of us with. We see this play out in Acts chapter number 1, verses 4 through 8. Jesus has already resurrected from the grave, and Acts 1, verse 4 says, While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said... You have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. Jesus is telling them, look, I want you guys to wait here until you receive the Holy Spirit. I've told you about this. This is the promise. This is the promise of the Father. I told you about this. This was prophesied. This is going to happen here in a few days, so wait until that happens. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Lord, is it now? Now are you going to institute your kingdom? Now are you going to institute your throne? Now are you going to rule from the throne of David? Now are you going to bring peace to all the nations? I love Jesus' response. He's so gracious and gentle with his disciples. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Oh, But you will receive power. 
It's not for you to know when God's going to do this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. I love this because Jesus helps his disciples and he helps us see that what we're still looking for, what we're still longing for is coming but not yet. It's coming but not yet. Jesus is helping his disciples and by, by telling them, look at God is going to make everything right that you are so longing to see be made right. Their desire was a right desire. They wanted to see Jesus and God rule from the throne and bring about worldwide peace. They wanted to see all the world bowing before Jesus. Their desire was right, but he rightfully helps them understand this isn't that moment yet. God's going to do it. Don't worry, disciples. God is going to do it. God will make everything right that you are so longing to see be made right. There will be a moment when the spiritual kingdom of God is made physical and perfect on earth. There will be a moment, guys. And he graciously corrects him and us by showing us that God our Father will execute that moment in his timing. Jesus is saying, that's God's job, guys, not not yours. That's God's job, not our job. As much as we long to know when that moment will be, and don't we long to know? We look around and we see crazy town. (laughs) We look around and we see sin. We look around and we see brokenness, and we cry out like the psalmist so often would, how long, Lord, rise up! Like the martyrs under the throne of heaven, we cry out for justice and we so long to know when that moment will be. But Jesus so graciously corrects us and tells us, like, that's not for us to know. God knows when that moment will be. And as much as we long to know when that moment will be, it's not for us to know. But the answer for us, Jesus says, at this moment is to be witnesses of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this encompasses so much more than just telling people the gospel, although it is so much that. (laughs) It is that. But it's also the way we live. We are witnesses of Jesus when we live holy lives that declare to the world he is worthy of following. He is a good king who is so glorious and he is worth giving our whole lives to. He is worth submitting to like we just sang about a moment ago. The answer for us at this moment is to be witnesses of Jesus, not in our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what makes Jesus weep? Sin and death. The answer? Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God, which is the promise of the Father who leads us, his church, to be witnesses of the love of Jesus. The answer is Jesus. Only Jesus. Forever Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not walking in the light. You have not yet responded to Jesus' call to belief. The answer to the problem of sin and death is Jesus. What we see is that humanity was alienated from God because of sin, the sin of unbelief. But in love, God became a man in the person of Jesus, and he lived a perfectly life, then allowed God to punish him for our sin by dying on the cross. Then he came back to life. He rose from the dead, proving that he was stronger than sin and death. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what we proclaim and what we celebrate. The way to walk in the light as Jesus pleaded is to believe in Jesus as Jesus pleaded. Believing in Jesus means you believe that he lived perfectly for you, that he died and rose again so that you could be reconciled back to God. Believing in Jesus means you place your faith in him and him alone to save you. 
If you have not yet believed in Jesus, today would be such a great day to do that. And it's true. I'm going to say that every day of the week. But what a special day to believe in Jesus on Palm Sunday. We would love to speak with you after the service if you have questions about that. Or if there's some way that we can walk through that with you. If you're here today and you're like, I'm ready to believe, see us after the service. We would love to help you do that. The answer for what we seek is Jesus. And so we, as his church, as we look forward to Good Friday, this Friday, and as we look forward to Resurrection Sunday, let's remind ourselves where real peace is found. It's in Jesus. It's in the person of Jesus. As we're continually confronted with the brokenness of our world, let's remind ourselves that the answer to the world's brokenness is Jesus. We can't debate or legislate people into the kingdom of God. And there's a place for those things. I believe that. But the answer is Jesus. And so let's renew our passion for the, mis- for the mission of being messengers, of being his witnesses. Let's renew our passion for the mission of being steadfast witnesses of the love of Jesus. When we see the brokenness around us and when we, like the disciples, cry out and long for that moment when he makes every wrong right, let's remind ourselves that there is an answer for us now. And that answer is Jesus. And God has called us to be witnesses of that, to be witnesses of him. In a moment, we're going to sing a song called Forever Jesus. It's a song that reminds us that Jesus is our strong foundation in uncertain times. And you don't, I mean, you don't have to be an expert to understand that we live in uncertain times. We see brokenness all around us. But what I love about this song is it reminds us that it's about Jesus. Jesus is our answer. Jesus is our strong foundation. And that strong foundation will be forever Jesus. The song reminds us that he is our strength and he is our hope when we, when we are disappointed. He is our strength and he is our hope when we fail. And because we are secure in his constant love, we will sing to our king for all our days. And so on this Palm Sunday, let's sing with loud voices. Let's sing with full hearts to our king. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grant us, according to the riches of your glory, to be strengthened with power in our inner beings through the Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. I pray that we, being rooted and firmly established in love, would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, the height and depth of your love. I pray that we would know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that we may be filled with all the fullness of you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would awaken our hearts to your love and we would believe that you have given us everything we need to be witnesses of Jesus. We ask you this because you are able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations.